Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, welcome to what will be a four-week series about this, the Bible. Uh, Over the next four weeks, Pastor Jessica, Pastor Keith, and I are going to be helping you understand how to relate to Scripture, how to understand it, how to read it, and what relationship it has in your life and what it should hold. Now, as part of this series, because this is a series filled with mystery, wonder, and possibility. As part of this series, Pastor Matt and I are actually going to put out every Wednesday, 7 o'clock, I think it'll come out, a podcast where we are going to have dangerous conversations about the Bible. And we want you to go ahead and submit the questions that you might have about Scripture. We're going to do our best to answer them uh, online. You can do that in the chat room, but you can scan the QR code, go to onechurch.to, and you can ask the questions about God's Word or the Bible that might, you might bother you, the things that you might wonder about. We want to dive into all things about the Bible over these next four weeks. Now, where are we going? Well, let me just give you a summary. Next week, we're going to talk about is the Bible, is the Bible, does the Bible contradict itself? I'm going to be teaching next week, and I, I just thought of it when I was looking at my mug here that says, I can do all things through a scripture taken out of context. <laughs> we're going to teach, I'm going to teach you next week how to read the, read the Bible, how to understand how you can build a theology in the Bible. A lot of it is misunderstood, and you're going to see for reasons today. Uh, Then the week after, Pastor Keith is going to teach on, are God's promises meant for you? The answer is not as obvious as you might hope. Pastor Keith is going to help us to move beyond just inspirational scripture box verses to understand what promises you can build your life on. And then our series is going to be end with Pastor Jessica talking about should you anchor your life to the Bible? She's going to talk about how do you relate your life to the Bible? And of course, I, again, I'm going to say the answer's probably not what you think. It's probably richer and a little deeper and a little wider than you might know right now. So you're not going to want to miss being a part of this series. This isn't quite an exciting series. Today, I want to talk about is the Bible a dangerous book? Now, why answer that question? Because I think our world and culture has an interesting relationship with the Bible. The Bible is for sure. The Bible is popular. The Bible is popular. In fact, Business Insider released the most five published books in history. And I thought I'd play a little game with you this morning. Because I know you're all readers, right? Ish. We'll see. But, but like, uh, I want to I see if you can guess what the f- top five books ever published in human history are. I'm going to give you a little hint with each one. The first one was published, over 120 million copies were sold globally. Here's your hint. This is a layup one. I'll give you an easy one here at the first. Hogwarts. Pardon? Yeah, jump in the chat room and you tell us. Harry Potter. Yeah, Harry Potter is the fifth most published book in human history. Number four, I didn't know. My wife knew. I didn't know it. But I'm going to give you a quote from a a hint. It was published over 140 million copies was published. Here's the hint. Here's a quote from it. All grown-ups were once children, but only a few of them remember it. 
Le Petit Prince. Whoever said that? Joanne, right? Is it? Yeah, fantastic. Wow. How many have read that book? Yeah, uh, very few of us. How many have even heard of that book? I hadn't even heard of it, but apparently it's a popular book. The third one I know well. The third one was over 150 million copies. Here's a quote from this one. Not all those who wander are lost. The Lord of the Rings, <laughs> J.R. Tolkien. Yeah, Bilbo Baggins said that. If you know, maybe you haven't read the book, but you've, you've seen the movies, maybe. I don't know. Then the second most one. Now, here's your English lit people. Lean in here. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Pardon? Tale of Two Cities. The school teacher in the fourth row gets that one. The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. The number one published book 500,000 copies published. Uh, here, let me give you a hint around it. It was written in 1605. It's situated in Spain, and the lead character is a man named Alonso. Anyone know this one? It starts with the letter D. Don Quixote, right in the back. Thank you. Can you believe that? How many have read that book? It may be popular, but it's not popular in this room. <laughs> now, I tell you all that to say that the Bible's in a completely different category altogether. 500,000 copies is what Don Quixote was printed and published in. The Bible, between 5 to 7 billion copies globally worldwide. 5 to 7 billion. It's in a category all its own. It is the most popular book in human history. There's none that compare. It's historically popular, but it's also presently popular. Over 100 millions of the copy, uh, copies of the Bible are published every year. That's a lot of paper. That's a lot of books uh, that have been published every year. So it's the most popular book in human history. So culture and society can't ignore the Bible. It's everywhere. But it's also polarizing. The Bible is also polarizing. The American Libraries Association Office of Intellectual Freedom, of course, you all know that one, don't you? Otherwise known as the OIF. I didn't know that, but they publish every year a list of books that are attempt, that are, there, there have been major attempts to ban in libraries and in schools. And on that list are some popular books like Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> is on that list. So is uh, uh, the, Maiden's Hand, uh, the Handmaiden's Tale, The Catcher in the Rye is always on that list. And so is the Bible every year. Detractors of the Bible would claim that the Bible is misogynistic, oppressive, genocidal, and homophobic in nature. And so for them, it's a very dangerous book. And of course, human history would tell us that the Bible has been used for many dangerous activities over the years. It's been used to justify slavery. It's been used to justify crusades, killing people in the name of Jesus. It's been used for all kinds of horrible things. So there's this element of it being a dangerous book. It's popular, but it's polarizing. So is it dangerous? Well, before I answer that question, Maybe we should understand the Bible a little bit more. Understand what actually makes up the Bible. You know, one of the things that every pastor, I'm sure Pastor Keith feels the same, Pastor Jessica and the other staff uh, pastors, every year when someone says, I'm going to read through the Bible. Now, this is the original Bible in this church that sat at the front of the church for years. And this is a picture Bible. I love this one. Pastor Matt's actually from the Bible Project, a great organization. And it kind of gives an overview 
of each of the each of the books of the Bible, kind of illustratively. So if you're like me, you like pictures more than words, then you'd like that. <laughs> but every year, the, the Bible, in terms of what it is and how it's written and how it's prepared and what it looks like, when someone says, I'm going to read through the Bible, I always get a little element of fear. Because I know they're going, to, they're going to go to Genesis and they're going to go, this is cool. They're going to love the story, the creation story, Noah, Joseph, all of these parts of the story. And you see the storyline, you start going, this is cool. Then they go into Exodus and they go, still cool, cool again. God's people getting delivered from captivity from Egypt. There's miracles. There's, there's a staff that turns into a snake. There's the Red Sea that parts. It's really cool. And then they hit Leviticus. <laughs> or actually Leviticus hits them. And all of a sudden, they're going like, where's the storyline? Like, I was in, into this. I was getting down with this. And all of a sudden, the storyline left. Something happened. And they ultimately, often what they do is they give up. So here's how I want you to understand what the Bible is framed like and what it looks like. The Bible is not a book. Can you say that with me? The Bible is not a book. You want to believe it is because it's all contained. Now, this is a set of my Bible. This is something I use. This is the New Testament, and it contains each individual book, and it's a set of books, and that's how the Bible is. The Bible is not a book. It's 66 different ancient pieces of ancient documents, literature. It's 66 documents bound together to make one book. It's not one book. It's Many documents put together to form one book. That's the formation of it. And here's the cool thing about it. it the first elements of the book were written in 1400 BC by a man named Moses. He, he writes, the, and the last elements of the Bible that you hold in your hand or you have in your phone were written by the Apostle Paul somewhere between 67 and 68 AD. And this is so cool. There's 1500 years of history for the course of the Bible, for that book, that collection of documents you have, it's 1,500 years of work. Here's the interesting thing. There's 40 authors, 1,500 years, there's 40 authors, and there's one story. This is what's amazing about it. It's not like a group of guys who got into a back room and thought, let's, let's, let's write up something that'll be cool. They didn't even know each other. When Paul's writing, they're dead and gone. But the consistency and the connectivity of the literature of Scripture is incredible. There's nothing like it. Uh, linguists will tell you there's nothing like it in ancient history. There's nothing that shows that there's 40 authors, 1,500 years, and one congruent story throughout all of those 1,500 years. Now, your copy of the Bibles divided into two sections. Do you remember what they are? There's the Look at this keener crowd. If you're online, I don't know if you heard them, but they just said the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. Now, that word testament, do you know what it means? You know, uh, often in modern-day culture, when someone passes away, they leave their last will, and testament is an agreement. It's testament equals covenant, actually. And a covenant is a style of agreement. If you want to understand what the Bible's framework is, it's a book of agreements. That's what it is. It's a book of agreements. Now, a covenant is different than a contract, which is, in modern culture, those are the agreements we're more used to. A contract is something that you sign to protect your interests in an agreement, right? So if one party does not honor that, you have leverage. 
A covenant is different. A covenant is an agreement, it's an ancient kind of agreement, that you enter into not to protect your interests, but to protect the interests of the other party. So that's why a marriage is not a contract. It's a, it's a covenant. When I, I, it would be 30 years this summer for Shelly and I, we've been married. I know, where does that go? No, I, I was 10 years old when we got married, and I am just determined to believe that. No, she chased me for years, and this, I've got a version of the story that frames me really well. <laughs> and then Shelly's got the truth, which is a different one. But, you know, when we got married, we didn't sign a contract. We entered into a covenant agreement, one where I promised, I'll protect your interests. And she promised she'll protect my interests. And the Bible records a series of agreements between God and us that he enters into, and he's determined to protect our interests. Here's the thing. The Old Testament is the old covenant, right? The New Testament is the? Let's go through this again because I think we just missed it. The Old Testament is the? Old covenant. The New Testament is the? It's the new covenant. The old covenant talks about the relationship between God and ancient Israel, his people. The the remnant that he uh, uh, selected and identified to be a witness, the salt and light to the world of who the one true God is. The New Testament is an agreement, or the new covenant is an agreement between God and the first century church, the church that is even in this room today or gathered online today. It's an agreement there. Now, what complicates it a little bit is the Old Testament is not just one covenant. It's many covenants, multiple covenants in the Old Testament. There's a covenant between Noah and God. You remember God floods the earth and promises Noah with a rainbow? I'll never do it again. He enters into a covenant with Noah. There's a covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And where he said, listen, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to multiply you. And from you is going to come the Messiah. It's an incredible covenant. There's a covenant with King David in the Old Testament. There's a covenant with King Solomon. So more accurately, this probably should read the Old Covenants, the Old Testaments. But... The New Testament, there is only one covenant. And we're going to celebrate it at the end of our gathering today. Where Jesus enters into a covenant with his people. Here's what he said. He gathered his disciples. It's near the end of his earthly life. And he said, after supper, he took the cup and he said this. This cup is the, say it with me, new Let's say it again. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed by my blood. Why his blood? Well, all the covenants in the Old Testament were ratified by the shedding of blood of an animal. And it was a significant portion of this. And in the New Testament, the new agreement, the new covenant, it was by the shedding of Jesus' blood. Jesus is saying to all of humankind, through my blood. He's saying this, I'm starting a brand new thing in humanity, something that's never been done, a new agreement. So we have old covenants and we have a new covenant. If there's a new covenant, that makes the other ones old, old. We're people of the new covenant, people of the new covenant. Okay, so that gives you a framework. That helps you understand the Bible. The Bible works with agreements, covenant agreements. And we are people of the new covenant.
Now, that doesn't make the Old Testaments less valuable or different, but it makes our relationship to them different. But to complicate things, because I'm going to complicate things before we simplify them, the Bible is hard to understand because there's multiple genres of literature in it. So if it's a library of documents, right? It's a library of documents. When you go to the library, there's a fiction section, there's a nonfiction section, there's a poetry section, there's a self-help section, and the self-help, the self-help section just keeps, keeps growing, right? And it's not helping. No, it's not just kidding. But there's all kinds of genres. You can't read them all the same and anticipate that they're all, you're going to be able to understand them by using the same tools. So the first five books of the, of the Bible are called the law. Uh, the Jews would call it, the Jewish people would call it the Torah or the Pentateuch. I wonder how many of you can say the first five books of the Bible with me. There's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those books of the Bible form the foundation of Judaism. The Judaism is built on the background of the first five books of the Bible. Now, Christianity has its roots in Judaism. So they're really important to Christians, those first five books of the Bible also, because our roots come from that. Then it moves into what we call historical books. And the historical books give the chronicled events of the people of Israel and God as their Savior, God as their God, and the relationship between two of them. And then you get the prophet, or the poetry books, and the wisdom literature books. These are books written that, again, are poetic. How many love poetry? All the English teachers' hands just went up there. And how many understand Shakespeare? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> poetry is interesting. You can't read it like history and understand it. It's a different form of literature. And often theologians put it, not just the poetic books, they put the wisdom literature books together with it. They're a different style of writing that you need to handle differently. And then from there, you go into the prophets. And the prophets were people who communicated from God to his people. Again, very different types of books. Then you jump into the New Testament, and then you get the Gospels, which give the Chronicles, the life of Jesus. You get one history book in the New Testament. It's the book of Acts, written by uh, Luke. Then you go into a lot of correspondence. It's kind of neat that you get in the New Testament, the bulk of it is letters. Letters written between the Apostle Paul and the new churches that were founded in the then-known world. So you get this correspondence. And then finally, you have one apocalyptic or prophetic book in the New Testament. It's the last one in the Bible called Revelation. And again, a very different style of literature. So there's 66 documents. Here's the danger, is that you try to read them all the same. There's a danger in it. This is why there's a lot of confusion with the Bible. A lot of people take things out of context. You know, there's every tradition, every Christian tradition has its strength and its weakness. One of our great strengths is the authority of Scripture for a Protestants or evangelicals. There's a, there's a great strength in that. One of our weaknesses is, is we tend to, as what theologians say, we read the Bible flat. And evangelicals do that a lot. What it means is we read everything literally. The problem is, is there are portions of Scripture you should read literally, and there are some that are filled with great imagery. The apocalyptic literature, the poetic literature, some of the wisdom literature, it's not meant to be read literally. It's allegory and imagery that helps you connect to literal truths. But uh, again, I would say to anyone who says, you know, have you ever seen the bumper sticker or ever heard the thing, if the Bible says it, that's, that's it for me, that's all I believe it, you know that statement? Uh, nobody means that. 
Nobody actually follows everything in the Bible. Not, and you know, and we'll get into this next week, you pick and choose. We all pick and choose. We're going to talk about this week, next week, and why we know, and I think there's some good in that, and you'll see why next week. But in this imagery, if you read it flatly, you're going to have trouble reading Scripture and understanding it. Now, even further complicating it, we're going to get to the solution side, is it's not chronological. You start reading the Bible, and you, again, you start following the thing, and it seems all chronological, and then it goes all over the place. And you're like, is this person here or what? Because it's not laid out chronologically. So let, let's go through the opening books of the Bible. The first book of the Bible chronologically would be Genesis, right. Yeah, right. Genesis. The second book of the Bible chronologically would be Job. Correct. Job, so they get keener in the front row. Did you look at my notes? I don't know. Job is written sometime in the Chronicle. Now, it's probably the most ancient. It's probably the first book written, actually. But, but it's written during the account of Genesis. Job would have happened then. The next book of the Bible is, nobody wants to say now, <laughs> Exodus. The next book of the Bible is Numbers, chronologically. Then Leviticus. And you start to see why it gets a little confusing because it's not laid out chronologically. Then you get into the historical books, and you, many of the kings or the books are written by uh, the historical books. They chronicle the events. This is what, and it really what it chronicles is what people are saying to God and what people are doing in life. And then you get the prophetic books and the psalmists, which help us to see how God communicates to us. And you can see some of the things that are on God's heart and that moves his heart, what God is thinking is saying. Let me give you a couple examples. Again, I've tried to not nerd out too much over this because we'll talk about this Wednesday and we'll, we'll dive deeper. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, one of the historical books, it chronicles King David's worst chapter. I'm sure if he had the delete button and if he was writing that, he might want to have deleted that chapter because he doesn't come off looking very good. He commits adultery, murders, you know, little things like that. It's very embarrassing and it's very wrong. And here's this king that's supposed to be so righteous and good and there's nothing righteous and good about it. So it's very interesting, but what's really fascinating is if you draw a parallel to Psalm 51, Psalm 51 gives you David's diary. He writes in Psalm 51 exactly how he felt when he got caught in sin. When, when everything happened in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he tells you how he was feeling, what he was thinking, and how he's relating to God. There's no piece of ancient literature like this. Some will give you historical facts. Some might give you some sort of diary or, or dialogue in the background, but none of them put it together. All of a sudden, not only do you get to know the facts, you get to know what people are thinking and how they're processing and how they're repenting and how they're relating to God. Friends, there's no literature in the world like this. Now, again, chronologically, nobody's going to want to answer this question after I've just thrown a bunch of curveballs at you, but what is the chronological last book in the Old Testament? <laughs> Nehemiah, of course. Nehemiah is. And Nehemiah chronicles the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah writes this, and after he finishes Nehemiah, the, the last chapter, the last words are written, we go into what is called 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything goes dark. Nothing is written. God doesn't speak. Shh. Everything goes silent. 
Do you know what happens during those 400 years? Your high school history class happens in those 400 years. The Persians, the Greeks, the rise of the Greeks, Alexander the Great, Rome, Romulus, the Seven Hills, all of that happens in that 400-year section. Is God doing anything? And you're going to see that even the religious leaders, they begin to go into autopilot because God's silent. God mustn't be doing anything. But get this, friends. Think about this. God in his sovereignty was setting things up. Alexander the Great conquered the then-known world and brought a common language to everyone, which was Greek. And the New Testament is written in Greek. All of a sudden, there was a language that could be understood to the then-known world. Then Rome ushered in what was called the Pax Romana. And I know the history buffs in this room know what that is. It means the peace of Rome. All of a sudden, the first time in human history, travel became safe so the gospel could spread. Then something happens early in the New Testament. It's the diaspora. It's the spreading out of the believers under persecution. They can go anywhere because it's safe. And they have a common language to share the good news wherever they go. And the church takes off. It's almost as if God knew what he was doing. I wonder how many of you, and you're in a pocket of silence, and it feels dark, and you just wonder if God's up to anything. I wonder how many things he's moving in the background that you can't connect the dots yet. But someday you'll look over your shoulder and you go, oh, God was at work the whole time. While Nehemiah is writing, three prophets are writing. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And Malachi, they all prophesy about someone that would come, and a prophet that would come that would reveal the Messiah. And here's what it says, like in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. The Messiah will come. And the religious leaders, again, they're on autopilot. It's been 400 years of silence. They're they're looking. They haven't seen any hope here, and they're wondering. And all of a sudden, they start to hear about somebody. A hermit, unkempt hermit, locust-eating, rag-wearing prophet in the desert. John the Baptist. And they hear of miraculous things. They hear about his teaching. And they come to John and they ask him, is he the one? Are you the one? Are you the one that we've been looking for? Are you the king? Are you the coming Messiah that's going to set all things right? And I'm sure once they saw John, they were hoping he wasn't the one because he did not look like a king. He was very unkempt, rag-wearing and eating locusts in the desert. He was not at all what they wanted. And John says, oh, guys, guys, I am just the warm-up act. No, 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 guys, get ready. I am just the pre-game show. You have no idea. But the one is coming. Behold the Lamb of God who will take away of the sins of the world. I mean, friends, the Bible is absolutely amazing. It has one story of redemption throughout it. We're going to explore it next week. It's incredible, but understanding it helps you to be actually able to engage with it. Is it a dangerous book? Is the Bible a dangerous book? Yes. Yes, it is. It's a dangerous book. It's a dangerous book because it's disruptive. 
The Bible is incredibly disruptive. Do you know how many dictators and dictatorial governments the Bible has been a part of revolutionarily changing and overrunning and overturning? Why? Because the Bible speaks of freedom. The Bible speaks of equality. The Bible speaks of an allegiance to a kingdom, an alternative kingdom, that before I'm a Canadian, I have citizenship elsewhere that trumps all these small kingdoms of this world. My citizenship is now in heaven. There's a higher authority than, even, than, than, than what I live in in this nation. And we honor the authority of this nation because the Bible would even instruct us to do it. But we answer to someone even higher. We have a higher allegiance. It's so dangerous that you know that 52 countries today in the world it's illegal to have a Bible. 27% of all the nations on earth. It's just too dangerous for them because it's too much about equality and freedom and revolution in Scripture. How dangerous and disruptive is it? Uh, the, the activist uh, Gandhi, who was not a Christian, but he greatly respected Jesus and greatly respected the Bible. He, I, I love a couple of things they said. Of Jesus, he said this. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Uh, why was he saying that? Because Gandhi was experiencing colonialism in India. And he saw what was done in the name of Jesus that was oppressive, that just took and didn't give back, that dominated with power and control. And he couldn't couldn't reconcile the Christ he reads in Scripture and the people who claimed an allegiance to this Christ acting this way. Maybe, Maybe you struggle with Christians, and you're a Christian. I, I like what he said about the Bible. He said this. The Christian, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow up the civilization to pieces. Turn the world upside down and bring peace to the battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. One of the tenets of this true, uh, Scripture, and we'll talk about it in a moment, is that Scripture, the Word of God, is powerful. And Gandhi, I think, is right. It's like dynamite. It's able to bring peace to war-torn areas. It's able to blow up demonic strongholds. It has so much truth and power in it. It is certainly a dangerously powerful book that can be so disruptive. How many of you have been disrupted by the truth of Scripture? My life was disrupted by it. All of a sudden, the truth of Scripture cut across the way I was living And it's disruptive because the Bible doesn't leave you with options. It leads you to places of transformation. So it calls you to something different, even sometimes difficult. The Bible is also dangerous because it's disturbing. It's a disturbing book. It's a disturbing book. There are parts of the Bible, let's admit, there's parts of this Bible that are hard to understand, and there's parts of the Bible I'd rather not understand. Anyone been there? I know the ones nodding have read it, (laughs) because there are parts that are just, you know, for every verse that is great, like we know all God works, causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We love that verse. There's always one that's so strange. You're like this, like, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. My shirt is 100% cotton and therefore 100% godly today. Because if it was blended, if I had polyester or something, I'd be sinning against what it says to do in the book of Leviticus. 
So it's a strange verse. How do you reconcile that verse with this other one? It's not just that we misunderstand and there's areas of misunderstand. There are some disturbing portions of Scripture. We love Jeremiah 29.11, don't we? Where it says, where it says, where it says, let me just read it here. Because I've got a version of, on my, in my memory and then I have a version that's written. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. For every one of those verses, there's one of these verses. I don't know if we'll have it up or not. Jeremiah 19 verse 9, just go back a couple chapters, where God says, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh because their enemies will press the seed so hard against them to destroy them. Disturbing. I like the, when God works all things together for good, don't you? <laughs> I prefer the, God, for God so loved the world. Like, I like that part. Uh, but what do you do with those other parts? So let's just admit, there's some areas of misunderstanding that are hard to understand. Like, why is that there? We're going to explore it next week. And there's some areas that are just plain disturbing. But I think the reason why the Bible is maybe most dangerous to us is because it's dangerous to discount the Bible makes claims of itself that no other book makes of itself. The Bible makes claims that if they're true, it makes it dangerous to ignore. It's ignore at your own peril. In fact, the Bible says things like this. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, one version of the Scripture will say is God-breathed. And that's a trend in Scripture. When you see that Adam, when Adam is created, it says God breathed the, the life of God into him. He breathed life into him. In John chapter 20, it says that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. However it's God is involved with breath, it's bringing life. And what it's saying here is that God breathed on human people to author the Word of God. All Scripture and it's useful to teach us what is true. Truth is what we're looking for here. Uh, it's not, it doesn't say it's useful to teach us for what we wish to hear, or it's useful to teach us for what our opinion is. God cuts across all of that, and he says, listen, my ways are higher than your ways. I'm going to always be truthful with you. I'm always going to tell you the truth. And how many know anyone who's a truth teller in your life, it's not always comfortable? It's hard to sometimes hear the truth. Wouldn't you sometimes like to live in blissful ignorance? Only me? <laughs> when people tell me true things, sometimes I'm just like, I kind of wish I didn't know. Now I'm responsible for what you just told me. So it's useful for what is true and to make you realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. This is an incredible claim. If this is true, ignore it at your own peril. Ignore it at your own peril. The Bible is described in Hebrews as being a double-edged sword. That means it can cut for us or it can cut against us. You get to choose. It can cut for you or cut against you. I've ignored the truth of this book. I've ignored it, and it's cost me dearly. At some season of life, I just stubbornly thought I knew better. 
Other times, the consequences that are laid out in Scripture for what some actions I might do are, I sometimes I want to live like they're empty threats. You know, like a parent threatens you all the time to just control you? You know, like, if you do this, there'll be no TV for a year. And you know, that lasts an hour. <laughs> you know, whatever it is. It, I, I, you, you can treat it like it's just filled with empty threats. The thing is, though, and I think the theologian Peter Kreft was right when he said this. He said, sin has made us stupid so that we can only learn the hard way. <laughs> Nobody wants to be called this today. <laughs> but this would certainly represent me. Sin has made us stupid so that we can only learn the hard way. We all learn the hard way. But we have a choice whether we allow the hard way to help us to live a better way. And that is what the Bible is trying to do. Help us live a better way. Now, to quote the famous theologian and scholar, Willie Nelson, <laughs> Willie grew up in poverty, and he talks about it when growing up, he was raised by his grandparents, his parents weren't around, and he said, we never had enough money, and I started working at an early age to help the family get by. The hard work included picking cotton, and he said this, picking cotton is hard and painful work. And the most lasting lesson I learned in the fields was that I didn't want to spend my life picking cotton. That was his lesson. I don't want to spend my life picking cotton. So for those who have ears to hear, the Bible says it is a lamp unto your path. It'll illuminate your feet in the direction you, should, could, could, you go in. It can keep you out of the cotton fields of life. It can keep you out of the cotton fields of life. So much of what we do as a church, whether it's Love Army or Global Focus or blowing out the doors of this church to the community around us, is about allowing people to have the opportunity to have God's word cut for them, not cut against them. It's an opportunity, it's all about allowing somebody to have an ability or an opportunity to hear the truth, because we actually do believe that the truth can set anyone free. Anyone. Truth is what sets us free. The Bible has been dangerous in my own family's life. It's caused us to live a sacrificial life. It's caused my family and I to prioritize this church community over other activities in this life. It's caused us to move to, I don't know, Shelley, four provinces to serve Christ in his church. It's caused us to say no to many competing values this book has led us to places of obedience where we've shared our faith when it's not always been comfortable and when we stood up against injustice in this world, even though we might be misunderstood. We only do that because the, the Bible is truth and illuminates the path and we are trying to follow it. But you need to understand, every time we've taken a step as a family, it always felt dangerous. It was never comfortable. Obedience is seldom comfortable. But the consequence of not following truth is more dangerous than following truth. Here's two truths, and we're gonna, I'm going to end with this, that we anchored our family to from the Bible. Two truths, and then we're going to go into a time of communion. The first is, my, you could ask my boys. They would know this about our family and how we've operated always. Our family is a Jesus-first family. Jesus first, they know this. Jesus before anything. Jesus before anyone. Jesus is first. And we anchored it to a truth that Jesus spoke of. He said this, Seek first the kingdom of God 
and I've, my boys know this because this is over and over, above all else. Boy, that's a challenging statement, isn't it? Oh, I mean, we're seeking promotion, we're seeking relationship, we're seeking success, we're seeking health, we're seeking this, we're seeking not to get older. You put all kinds of stuff on your face not to get older, you dye your head. We're seeking all kinds of things, and those things are okay, but above all else, seek his kingdom, and I love to forget this next part, and we often do, and live righteously. How I live matters. Righteously just means to have right standing between you and God. There's nothing between you and me, God. Nothing between, oh, you're going to sin. You're going to make mistakes, but you're going to rely on his grace and keep short accounts, keep nothing between you and God. So live righteously, and then say this last sentence with me because this is the promise we all love. And he will give you everything you need. He'll give you everything you need if you'll seek first his kingdom and live righteously. Friends, there's going to be lots of cotton fields in life. Some of them are unavoidable. They're outside of you. There's stuff that happens to you in life. But there are avoidable ones. And why I wanted this to be an anchor truth for my kids growing up is I wanted to avoid, because as a pastor for 30 years of pastoring, I have seen painful choices of humans. I've seen them suffer consequences of their own actions and willful ones. And I just felt there's enough cotton fields in life. Why put yourself in more of them? So there's a beautiful thing. Put Jesus first. The second thing is, this is the truth I wanted to anchor down. Jesus loves most. Jesus loves most. Jesus loves above everything. When my boys were little, I used to have this little conversation with them. I'd ask them all the time when we were alone, I'd always say, who loves you most? And it was always a little game with them. They'd start by mentioning the names of our dogs. Georgie loves me most. And I go, no, Georgie doesn't love you most. Then they go to their grandparents. Then they go to their mother. Never me. Never me. And then they would give me the answer they know I was looking for. Jesus loves me most. And after they said that, then I would remind them that I love them more than their mother does, really. I really do. I really do. See, it's anchored to a truth found in, the God, in, in 1 John. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. See, I grew up in a spirituality that was rich with guilt and fear and even judgment and it built a performance-type relationship with God. I was always trying to earn his love. And the enemy has a heyday in your relationship. If you're on an earning God's love, you're always going to come up short. Instead, I've spent all my early faith years trying to earn God's love instead of living God's love. So we're going to go into a time of communion. The great reminder that it's Jesus first and Jesus loves most. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. 